Welcome to this latest edition of Lung Cancer Voices as we come towards the end of 2021. And I'm joined by two oncologists from different parts of Canada as we're going to look back at the highlights of the year and the places where maybe lung cancer has made some of the biggest strides forward. So um, to do that, I'm joined by Dr. Doreen Azefe, who is a medical oncologist at the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary and uh, assistant professor at University of Calgary. And Dr. Rosalind Jurgens, who is a medical oncologist in Hamilton. She's an associate professor at McMaster and has her practiced at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center. Um, both Dr. Azefe and Dr. Jurgens, big supporters of Lung Cancer Canada. Um, and in fact, Ros is the chair of our medical advisory committee and the recent host, if you attended the uh, Evening of Hope or our stakeholder press briefing. So we'll get right into it. There's been a lot going on in lung cancer in the last 12 months, despite the pandemic. Um, Dr. Azefi, I'm gonna to come to you first. What would be your number one uh, thing that you think people should take away from 2021? I think the data uh, looking at um, adjuvant immunotherapy in resected lung cancer was quite compelling. The Empower 010 clinical trial, and that would be interesting to discuss. So um, that, that was the big highlight which came out of the ASCO conference back in the summer. Um, could you just kind of maybe walk us through um, what, that, what happened in that study? You know, what, how did it? How did it? How did it work out? What What did people sort of volunteer for when they went into that trial? Yeah. So um, in this study, this the study included patients who had um, resected lung cancer, so lung cancer that had been removed by surgery, and this was patients who had stage two to three A, and they actually also included stage one B in their intention to treat population. So this was patients with uh, tumors larger than four centimeters in size or where the cancer had moved into the lymph glands. Those patients were included and um, the tumors were resected and then they received standard of care chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, which our standard is cisplatin-based adjuvant chemotherapy. And after that, they, patients were randomly assigned to either receive adjuvant immunotherapy with atezolizumab or placebo. And the atezolizumab was given every three weeks for 16 cycles, so that's almost a year, um, or until disease recurrence or unacceptable toxicity. So, um, and just just for those who aren't familiar with some of these terms, adjuvant uh, um, adjuvant is a treatment that we give after surgery. And and what's what's the purpose of adjuvant therapy? Isn't isn't people might think, well, this, the cancer's removed by an operation. Why do I need anything else? So. Why do people have adjuvant therapy to begin with? Yeah, so the worry is that um, before the surgery, there may have been tiny little seedlings of cancer cells that had escaped and are floating around in the blood cells. So adjuvant chemotherapy is usually given after surgery to help mop up those little seedlings and reduce the chances of the lung cancer coming back. And so we've been doing chemotherapy in that setting for... 15, 20 years now, I guess. Um, what, what's the idea behind doing immunotherapy instead if chemotherapies already can already do some of that mopping up that you described? 
Yeah, so immunotherapy has received a lot of attention in the past 10 or so years, and a lot of different cancers, lung cancer being one of the areas where immunotherapy has really benefited our patients. We've seen the benefits of immunotherapy in the advanced disease setting. Um, survival has improved significantly. So typically what we do when we study a, um, a treatment in the advanced setting and we, it proves to be very effective is that we now move it up to earlier stages and ask the question, can it be beneficial in people who have receptible lung cancer and early stage lung cancer? Can it really do a better job at reducing the chances of the lung cancer coming back and improving the chances that the cancer is cured? So that was the question here. And uh, uh, you've set this up now. What's the answer? Does it work? Does it, uh, <laughs> does it stop the cancer coming back or, or not? So, you know, the clinical trial really received a lot of buzz. The results were very, very exciting, both in the ASCO meeting and the um, World Lung meeting this fall. You know, what they found was that there was a disease-free survival improvement. There was a very compelling disease-free survival improvement. And that means the chances that it reduces the um, chances of the cancer affecting survival in the future. Um, so that was very compelling. We saw that there was a great reduction in disease-free survival. The hazard ratio was zero. 0.66. And this was in patients whose cancer expressed high levels of an immune marker, PDL1, greater than 1%. Can, can I ask you just to explain that? You said, you said hazard ratio 0 0.66. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so that means that there was a 34% reduction in the chances of the cancer affecting survival in the future. Okay. So, so what you're saying is uh, that this trial is saying people who got the immunotherapy after surgery, approximately a one third reduction in the risk of the cancer coming back? Yeah, exactly. So, the, the, yeah, okay. Approximately one third reduction in the chances of the cancer coming back to impact their survival. Okay. So what do you mean to impact survival? So you mean it might come back and be, you'd be okay with it anyway? Like you come back and you take it out again? That's actually an interesting question, Paul, because if we looked at the ESMO presentation of this data, they actually gave us a snapshot of what the differences look like. And if the cancer did come back, how did it come back? Because that can be important. Right. So it, uh, at that presentation, we actually found out that patients who had received immunotherapy were more likely to have the cancer if it was gonna come back locally, so in the chest, usually in lymph nodes, rather than distantly. So in places like your bones or your liver or uh, your brain. Um, so we saw significant reductions in far reaching spread that likely were mitigated by the immune system. Okay. You know, having a cancer that comes back in the chest may actually have the opportunity for, for treatment with something like a surgery or chemotherapy and radiation with still that ongoing opportunity of cure. Now we still don't know that yet. We don't know what the cure rate is with this treatment. So that's something that's gonna take a long time for us to get that information back. So it reduces the risk of a recurrence, but but we don't yet know if that translates down the road into cure. So, yeah. uh, Doreen, um, you know, a one third reduction of 34%, I think it was the number you gave us. Um, like, is this being adopted now? Are we able to give this? Can you do that in Calgary or is it, um, is it too soon? 
it's a bit too soon right now. So that's the difficulty is because um, we don't have the overall survival ra um, rates yet. The data is still immature. So we don't know yet if cure rates are improved. And in order to adopt these therapies in um, you know, our publicly funded healthcare system, we would ideally like to wait for overall survival data because that really is the most compelling data. Um, it's certainly very exciting though. And it's something that uh, we were hoping will get funded. We're hoping we do see overall survival improvements, but, but we don't know that yet because we have seen other adjuvant studies of you know, targeted treatments where there is a DFS improvement and we don't necessarily see that translate to an overall survival improvement. Right. Now, Dr. Wheatley-Price, we can see on the, the Health Canada website that this therapy has been submitted for a Health Canada review. Okay. We're still awaiting for the, the results of the Health Canada review to let us know whether or not they think it might be safe in the, either the study population or a, a subpopulation. Um, so we'll have to keep our eyes on uh, what Health Canada thinks about this information, and that yeah. should be coming out in the upcoming months. Okay. Great. Well, let's move on to something else. But I think I think we're probably all in agreement that this Empower Ten study was was the big headline, the big headline clinical trial result of uh, of 2021, and and this uh, tantalizing uh, thought that immunotherapy w is is going to be a major boost to people who've had surgery. Um, but you know. Uh, Ros, if I come over to you now, uh, you know, lung cancer is a complex disease or series of diseases. You, you wanted to have a different set of highlights about some of these other subtypes of lung cancer. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, I think we as uh, thoracic medical oncologists, people who treat cancer with treatments that go into the bloodstream, um, have, have really uh, modified how we look at managing this diagnosis. And one of the most important parts of us managing the diagnosis, especially when the cancer has spread outside of the lung to places like your liver or your bones or your brain, we really need to understand as much about the, what we call molecular genetics or what makes this cancer tick, what makes this cancer grow. Because we've discovered that if we understand um, or if we find out information about specific things that makes this cancer tick, we can often take advantage of that knowledge and um, pair that person with a personalized treatment. And I think most of our listeners may be familiar with uh, some of the targets that we've known for many years, like the epidermal growth factor receptor or the ALK uh, tyrosine kinase. But this year we've actually picked up a few new targets where very specific drugs have uh, resulted clinical trials. So one of those, um, super duper fascinating, Paul, um, it's a mutation in a gene called MET. So M-E-T, like I met you at the grocery store. Um, so the neat thing about MET is this type of mutation in the lung cancer um, was sort of found by accident. So it, uh, it's actually a mutation that's not in the normal part of the, the gene that we would look at when we're looking for these types of things that we're trying to find. Um, it was found in a piece of DNA that was we often called junk DNA. Um, but uh, again, by, by good fortune, uh, we discovered that this mutation was here. And what happens is, is when that mutation is there, a whole portion of this, this receptor um, is just missing. 
Um, so we call it met skipping because the whole part of the gene is just skipped over when um, the receptor is being made. And we now have not one, but two different drugs that have been submitted to Health Canada for review. One of them has been approved. That's a drug called tapotinib. And there's another one just on its heels, capmatinib, that have been looked at in both the post-chemotherapy setting, as well as as frontline treatment for patients, specifically with this MET skipping mutation. Right. Now, MET skipping is kind of cool in that it can be found in both lighter never smokers as well as smokers. Um, it's actually found in more often patients who are a little bit older and often more women. Um, and it's seen in somewhere in the range of three to 4% of newly diagnosed metastatic uh, adenocarcinomas of the lung. And adenocarcinoma is the most common type of lung cancer. And when we look at the literature on how well do patients do when they receive these treatments, um, again, we're seeing quite impressive response rates to these therapies. So for example, if we look at um, the, the clinical trials, there was a, a few of them, the geometry trial and the vision trial, uh, we have data that uh, suggests that we're seeing uh, response rates anywhere from around 50% up to uh, the mid 60s uh, with the different treatments. So response rate is a number that tells us how likely it is that the cancer is going to significantly shrink with the treatment. And most of the time when the cancer shrinks, people start feeling better from the therapy. So some very exciting data coming in that MET skipping space. So, um, uh does everybody know their met skipping status if you've oh, got see, lung Paul, cancer? you've asked the million dollar question um and so the way that we find out about met skipping most often is through something called molecular testing so there are multiple different ways that molecular testing can be completed um so th this gets all into technical terms but these are tests that Sometimes the oncologist orders after you've had a biopsy. Sometimes they're what we call reflexively ordered right by the pathologist who's making the diagnosis of a lung cancer. That is sent off so that part of the genetic material of the tumor, um, in this case, um, it can either be what we call DNA um, or sometimes the next step in uh, the DNA being processed, something called RNA, um, can be analyzed in these machines called next generation sequencing uh, analyzers. And what's been very exciting, Paul, is that we have seen a absolute flurry of provinces making announcements that they are going to start paying for this type of testing across the country. I actually just did uh, an informal survey of my colleagues, and I can tell you that British Columbia is already doing next generation sequencing as part of their, their standard of care, and they've been identifying this particular aberration for several years. If we move over to Alberta, um, they have not been doing this testing yet, but they are going to be rolling it out in January of 2022 through a new panel that they're approving. They're also starting to do this testing in a pilot in Saskatchewan. Manitoba has access to it now. Ontario made a huge announcement that MET skipping uh, is funded as of June 1st. Uh, 
Quebec, as of December 1st, made a huge announcement that this testing is going to be available. And then the Atlantic provinces have actually been ahead of the game and they've been doing it for a while too. So very exciting that we're going to have access to this type of testing. Okay. So, okay. So um, we talked about immunotherapy earlier after surgery. We've now learned about this new um, new mutation, the MET exon 14 the met skipping mutation and actually i could i could point people to the lung cancer canada website and say go and check out the webinar that we had earlier this year with dr alex drillon who is um uh, an oncologist in uh, in new york city at memorial sloan kettering and he and he talked uh, for a long time all about these sort of rare mutations was uh, really um really good and so now you're hearing that we're getting the testing um, m- much more widely available. There, there was, uh, I don't know if either of you would want to comment on this. One of the things that struck me at um, some of the conferences this year were some studies from the US um, where they really quite accurately described these inequities uh, to access to this NGS testing. And so, you know, particularly um, in the South, um, there was far, I mean, African-American populations was much lower uptake of NGS than there was in sort of the Northeast of the US. Um, in Canada, we haven't had that sort of analysis, but there was a report, not in 2021, but in 2020 about problems with equity and lung cancer that we have uh, with rural areas, uh, lower socioeconomic groups, um, indigenous populations. Um, um, Doreen, I'll come back to you uh, as we go back and forth here. Um, do you see do, do you see NGS testing um, and access to these treatments being equitable, um, maybe within Alberta or across Canada or, or testing? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that um, that's a very good point that you bring up, uh, Paul, actually. And, you know, these access inequities are a big issue. We see it not only in um, testing for N- with NGS testing, but also in when we try and access treatments, because a lot of these treatments are unfunded. And so the access inequities, I think, will persist when these these tests and treatments are not funded, because what happens is um, um, some of the vulnerable populations are disproportionately unable to access these treatments because you know people are relying on paying out of pockets or using insurance coverage or other ways that really really impact financial toxicity. Um, I think they did some studies in other cancers, prostate cancer most notably, and in African Americans they did find that um, there was a bit more hesitancy to accept genomic testing um, for for their genomic tumor testing in, in that population because you know there was medical system mistrust and um, underrepresentation of black people in healthcare providers. So these are some issues that um, add to the access inequities certainly okay. and need to be further studied, especially in the Canadian population. Um, in terms of access to drugs, maybe we could give a shout out to, to the work that Lung Cancer Canada does here. Roz, you chair the Medical Advisory Committee. What what role do you and your committee at LCC play in, in access to uh, care and access to treatments? 
Oh, thanks, Paul. You know, it, um, as Doreen alluded to earlier, it's a multi-step process for us to have access throughout the country for new treatments for all sorts of things. Um, you first have to have the regulatory hurdle of uh, Health Canada approval. Um, you then have to have what they call a health technology review that looks at the cost effectiveness of treatment. And then the provinces review that information and decide individually whether or not they're going to pay for a new treatment. Um, we in Lung Cancer Canada support these uh, applications where we think that these are treatments that would be in alignment with the, the qualities um, that are most important to our lung cancer patients. So we do that in two ways. One, um, we actually gather physicians from across the country and we write medical documentation and write a, a physician support letter to speak to where we would like as Canadian physicians to use these drugs. Um, and, and we have dozens upon dozens of people who sign on to each of these letters with every single submission. We also gather a patient and caregiver letter. And so we try to identify Canadian patients who have received these treatments, either through clinical trials or through compassionate programs or other programs to be able uh, to get their vantage on how, what did having access to this drug mean to them? What did it mean to their family member? Um, because that patient voice uh, rings very loudly, I think. Um, and so it's an incredibly important component of the review of these drugs as the provinces are looking to, to provide access to them, to the patients in general in the country. Great. Thanks for that. Um, so if there are people listening, actually, and you would like to support Lung Cancer Canada in some of that work, please do reach out to us. Um, so, um, Dorian, I'm going to come back to you. We'll get off policy and get back into some of the, the medicine. Um, so Dr. Jordan there was talking about this MET skipping mutation that's new and is occurs in about, I think you said about three or four percent of, of cases. Um, there is another mutation, uh, KRAS, which you were going to talk about, which is, is much more common. And um, maybe you could... Um, walk us through what are the 2021 highlights and what 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 is KRAS and what have we learned this year yeah KRAS G12C specifically and it's been very exciting this year because you know ancient for since the beginning of science you know KRAS G12C or KRAS in general has been you know considered undruggable because it's been very difficult to target and um, in just in this past few years, we've now started to experience, you know, the, the finding of drugs that are actually effective at targeting KRAS. And the first one that um, came into the scene was Sotorasib. And this was presented at ASCO and published in uh, New England Journal of Medicine as well. It was very exciting because they use uh, Sotorasib in KRAS G12C mutated uh, advanced lung cancer patients. And these were patients who had received previous chemotherapy plus or minus immunotherapy treatment. And um, they found that there was actually a response, quite a good response with a disease control rate of almost, you know, 75 to 80%. And the response rate was around 40%. So many people whose tumors are shrinking or staying stable and also feeling quite well on this medication. Um, so this was a huge achievement in a mutation that is found in a high proportion of lung cancer patients, about 25 to 30% of lung cancers have this KRAS G12C mutation. So um, it's certainly exciting. And I, have, I know myself, I have many patients with KRAS G12C mutations. So it's a nice yeah. option to have. And we're, we're certainly ho hoping that we have access to this medication in terms of 
um, provincial funding. Getting public access, future, yeah. So. It's been a very exciting, isn't it? And, and you know, the testing that you were talking about earlier and, and, and Roz, you're talking about the next generation sequencing analyzers, they'll pick up this KRAS mutation. Um, and, and there's a, just a point I, I pick up on there. You mentioned response rates of around 40%, and then you said disease control rates of around 75%. And I think we'd heard earlier a response rate means a significant shrinkage, but there's this other, another 40% where, you know, it might just shrink a little bit, but it's, it's not growing. It's it, so the cancer stabilized, uh, that the brakes are on. So it's either, it's either stationary or in reverse. And, uh, yeah, exactly. so, so generally, you know, we're all happy with that. I have to say 2021 was the first year that I prescribed that drug, uh, Sotorasib. And um, and uh, I was just chatting to the, the first patient who uh, just recently uh, who I prescribed that drug and, and they are doing wonderfully well on it. Cancer is shrinking and uh, very, very minor side effects. So um, very exciting. Um, Roz, anything to add on on KRAS? Well, I think, you know, the, the tricky part with KRAS um, is this is maybe not as straightforward a decision um, for medical oncologists and patients as maybe it is for some of the other targeted therapies, your EGFR, your ALK. In that space, like I said, the likelihood that the cancer is going to significantly shrink is very high, 75, sometimes even closer to 80%. These tend to be our lifelong never smokers or very remote smokers. Um, KRAS can be found and often is found in, in very significant smokers. And it's also the same space where we've seen big victories with immunotherapy. And so I think one of the more difficult decisions for us to make with patients is, is if we've done testing and it shows the patient might be someone who might benefit from immunotherapy, but it also shows they have this specific KRAS mutation, um, you know, what would you recommend? Because normally we would say, well, if there's a tablet option, you go down the path of a tablet, but immunotherapy is no slouch either. And we know if you've got enough uh, marker on your surface, um, something called PDL1 to suggest that you might benefit from immunotherapy, the data this year at ASCO said a third of them are going to be five-year survivors, which is just an unfathomable number. Um, that was from the Keynote 24 study. So I think you really have to have a big picture conversation about what people's priorities are, you know, it, where, where, you know, is it truly to, to get longevity? Is it about quality and not coming into the cancer center and, and being on possible tablets? Um, so there, there's multiple ways that you can approach these KRAS cancers. And I think, you know, it's a challenge I'm sure we're, we're happy to take on uh, head on. I, I, yeah. I mean, my, my interpretation of what you just said there, Roz, is that this is a nice problem to have. It is. Because uh, like a few years ago, not that many years ago, we would have had chemotherapy or no chemotherapy. And now you're trying to decide uh, between immunotherapy, which could work well, or the sotorasib, which Dr. Zafi just described, which also works well. And any reason why you can't put them both together or do one it's after common. the other? So yeah, clinical trials are ongoing right now. We've just literally so excited. We've been the first global study uh, that we're doing a KRAS inhibitor plus uh, immunotherapy. Um, so that's launched here and it's gonna be at a couple of sites across Canada. There's some other um, trials that are looking at that question. 
we're walking forward with some caution. Um, we've done some other clinical trials where we've tried to combine some of these tablets with immunotherapy and it hasn't gone well. Um, people have had significant side effects from that type of combination, but we don't know how much of it is specific to one tablet versus another. And so um, we're gonna walk the walk and, and see where we go with this, but we, we do have to do the trials. It's not something I would ever recommend that someone just pull off the shelf and, and prescribe right. the pembrolizumab by the province and then get the sodoracib, you know, from a prescription in the United States or something like that. I would not do that off study. Right. Okay. Good advice. So, okay. Um, we're, we're kind of coming towards the end of the pod now. Um, so just to recap, and then I'm going to come back to you both each for sort of one final thought, or is there a big thing that we've missed? Uh, but to me, I, you know, I agree with what you've both said. This has been an exciting year for lung cancer. Um, immunotherapy after surgery could be a real game changer. Um, and then, you know, multiple new subtypes. And you've mentioned the MET skipping and, and KRAS, but we've also seen new approvals for drugs or drugs working their way through the regulatory process for other rare subtypes uh, like RET and uh, a very, very rare one called NTRK or NTRAC. So there's been, a, there's been a lot of really cool stuff. And I, I'm, I'm just kind of blown away by every year seems to be a new thing. Um, and maybe if I was going to say my one highlight, and then I'm going to ask you both for yours, was the Canadian Cancer Society produced their annual cancer statistics um, about a month ago, a couple of months ago, maybe. Um, and the five-year survival rate, which is the way that we, we gauge how well we're doing, um, the five-year survival for lung cancer rate uh, is poor, but it's at its best ever. And um, a long way to go, it was just over 20%, but it's never hit 20% before. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a song by the M people, which is a UK old Manchester band from the 90s, which dates me and my origins, but the song goes, the only way is up. Uh, right. Uh, Doreen, what would be your, you know, is there another thing that we've missed or your other, you know, final takeaway? I think, I think I would echo what you said. I think we're making incremental advances in lung cancer and we're in this space now where we are seeing different subtypes of molecular subtypes of lung cancer. So I think as providers, we need to keep advocating for our patients to access some of these NGS tests and access some of these targeted treatments. And that's the best way forward. And Dr. Jurgens, what have we missed? Yeah, I think my highlight of this year is that Canada's keeping up, right? And so we talked about now how next generation sequencing is just exploding with proper funding. This isn't people paying out of pocket for it like it is in the United States. People are having provincially funded testing done appropriately. And then we've also seen the provinces picking up screening. Um, and honestly, of everything we've talked about today, I think screening is probably the most important of them all. If we can catch these cancers earlier, you don't need Doreen's immunotherapy and you don't need my targeted therapy. You potentially can be cured by a thoracic surgeon or maybe a radiation oncologist. 
And so, you know, we've seen extremely strong evidence from um, the, the Nelson trial that has shown us that we can move the pendulum and find lung cancers earlier if we screen. And there's been very exciting announcements in multiple provinces. BC's made an announcement. Ontario's moving forward. We're seeing stuff out of Quebec. Um, and so the fact that this is going to become a reality and that we're going to have the opportunity to screen you know what? I would be thrilled if it put us out of business, Paul. Like, let's, you know, I can find another day job. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, moving ourselves into the earlier space um, is definitely the, the wave of the future. Yeah, screening was big news, wasn't it? And for people who are interested in going back into the Lung Cancer Voices uh, archives, there are previous episodes with Dr. Stephen Lamb from uh, from Vancouver, who's, who's probably the the number one Canadian leader in, in lung cancer screening. Um, also episodes with uh, his colleague, Dr. Ronell Myers from Vancouver on some, some research in screening. And then um, Erica Nicholson from CPAC or the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, which has been the, the body that has really driven, uh, driven provinces to implement screening. So, um, you know, go back and check those out. Well, um, Listen, uh, uh, Dr. Zafri, Dr. Jurgens, thank you so much for your, your time and, and uh, putting some thought into, into this. Um, if people listening, if things have come up here that you're, um, you know, you touched you or are relevant to your own care, please, you know, do reach out to your medical team if you've got questions that you think are relevant. You know, have you had NGS testing or would you be eligible for some of these treatments? Do, do, go, and, do go and ask. Um, and then please tune back in for the next episode of Lung Cancer Voices. Thanks, Paul. Great.